Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 254, we're talking about a new wallet, Moon Wallet. And so Dario, the founder, joins me, and they've got a really interesting advanced technological approach with a few key differences in terms of the typical wallets that you might be used to. But we talk about some of that in this episode, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the fastest way from zero to Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been significantly de-risked over the past year. At this point, everyone should probably own at least a little. A common way people get started is establishing their initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. So with Swan, you can create a recurring purchase plan at and you can also make one-time buys. Swan supports bank wires for larger amounts and ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys. Swan is available in all states and territories of the US, including New York, and they are the best place to send your friends and family when they're ready to start buying Bitcoin. The focus is on education. So send them to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera, and Swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin in their account when they become a member. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services and they are helping customers use multi-signature for their security. So you can use a multi-signature vault for ultra-secure long-term storage. This means you can have multiple hardware wallets and you can separate those to give yourself some additional security benefits. There are no setup or storage fees if you build it on your own. So you can just buy two hardware wallets and set up for free on their website. So if you're unsure how to get started and you need some additional assistance, they've got the concierge onboarding package. So you can go and pay and get some assistance. Their team will ship you the hardware wallets. They'll teach you about multi-signature, answer your questions, and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. So normally that's $1,500, but you get $50 off if you use my code, Levera. Unchained also support business accounts or those of you looking for self directed Bitcoin retirement accounts. Go and check them out at unchained-capital.com. Compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. The anti-cloud mining option, Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. For years, we have all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now, with Compass, everyone is able to tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. And if you're unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass offers as hardware and hosting bundles, which eliminates the need for advanced technical knowledge and allows you to quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Visit them at minewithcompass.com and start mining Bitcoin today. Here's my interview with Dario. Dario, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. So Dario, I see you and the team at Moon Wallet have been doing some interesting things. Uh, but first, let's hear about you. How did you get into Bitcoin? Um, so I first heard about Bitcoin um, around 2011. Uh, a friend of mine uh, linked me to the paper. Uh, I read it, and it, it like I, I remember thinking, well, this might be possible. Uh, and so, but like I, I didn't get into it that much after after reading the paper. And then in 2013. Um, with some friends in college, uh, we started playing a little bit uh, further with Bitcoin. Uh, it was the first uh, Latin American Bitcoin conference. Uh, and so a lot of people all, from all over the world came here. Uh, and I uh, first uh, talked with uh, Andreas. And, and um, I remember like, his, uh, 
awesome speeches about Bitcoin and being really inspired about it and starting to think about how can, like, this is a really awesome technology. How can we get it to the point uh, where anyone can use it, right? Because um, it, at that point, it was super difficult. It was really difficult to buy Bitcoins, to use them safely, to not lose it. Um, and yeah, so... so uh, playing a little bit over the years, and then in uh, around 2014, um, with with these same friends from college, uh, we got together. We were talking about uh, payment channels, which were a really new concept at the time. Um, and we were thinking about what can we do with payment channels. Uh, and uh, after thinking about it for a bit, uh, we got together to to we did kind of a hackathon over a weekend and uh, did a demo of using um, payment channels uh, to, to stream video peer-to-peer. -peer. And we called it Streamium and launched it. And, and it, it, we had a lot of really good feedback. Um, and, and, and yeah, after a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of time after that, uh, I started working at Moon and, and actually saying, like, how can we make this accessible to everyone? And so I've been at it for, for uh, some years now. And yeah, that, that's how I got into it. Uh, really excited about all the recent developments. I, I think we're finally starting to see uh, this vision that, that was probably somewhat clear uh, back then, but a lot of engineering work had to be done to actually get here to start seeing like instant payments, super cheap payments, and that kind of stuff. Uh, in, in the last couple of months, I, I think we've seen a lot of adoption in the Lightning space. So it's really awesome that it's actually happening. And tell us how you got more involved in Lightning and a bit of your history around Lightning Network. Yeah, so I've been following Lightning for quite a while, uh, as I said. Uh, we were playing with payment channels really early on. And I, I remember, I think it was uh, mid-2017, I got together with uh, the people at Lightning Labs uh, and asked them like about the timings, uh, when is this going to be ready, and what, what are the fees going to be? It, it was really unclear at the time how it could all like fit together. And so after that talk, I, I got back uh, to Argentina and started working on thinking about how can we ship this in a mobile device. And, and one of the, the biggest problems at the time or, or things that weren't clear were the, how the fees were going to work and how rebalancing was going to work. And so uh, I hired a friend that was uh, doing his PhD in mathematics. And, and so we got into building like a, a lightning network simulator because at the time there was no network uh, to try to understand how, how it was going to, to fit together. Um, and after a while, we started actually uh, building uh, lightning into the wallet. Uh, it was a long road, but yeah. So, so I think from early on, we detected that two of the biggest technical problems in Bitcoin uh, were that for some kind of payment, Bitcoin is really slow, and for some kind of payments, Bitcoin can be super expensive, especially as time goes on and fees go up. And so Lightning was like the perfect solution. It, it complements perfectly with on-chain payments. And so uh, it was clear that the solution to making accessible payments in Bitcoin uh, was via the Lightning Network. But 
there was a lot of uncertainty as to how that was going to actually work. So we've been thinking about it for quite a while now. And yeah, so uh, we, after a lot of work, we finally got to What's Moon today, uh, which I think is a really nice demo of, of what Lightning can be. There's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's a, a lot of work ahead. And so, so I, I wouldn't call it uh, a final solution, uh, but I, I, I think it's, uh, we, we got a lot of positive feedback about the architecture and the UX we managed to get to. So, so we'll keep improving in that front. Cool. And I'd also like to talk about the relevance of Bitcoin in the Argentina Bitcoin scene and the impact of fees, because I'm sure uh, the fees rising in the Bitcoin world and, you know, over, during Bitcoin's bull runs, typically everything is indexed with number go up. So fees is, yeah. fees is going up and so on. Could you perhaps put that into context for us? How important is it that fees are kept cheap for people who need to do, let's say, peer-to-peer transactions or, you know, day-to-day spending uh, using Bitcoin and Lightning? Yeah, definitely. So here in Argentina, there are a couple of things really interesting going on. So on the one hand, there, there's a lot of people get, getting in, into Bitcoin right now. I think it's it's happening everywhere, but, but in Argentina especially, it's really easy for Argentinians to understand the value of non-custodianship because we've all seen it fail. Like almost every living Argentinian has seen the banks fail uh, and, and not being able to access your own money. And the non-custodianship pitch uh, is really easy to grasp. And on the other hand, we are super used to thinking in multiple currencies, uh, having currencies, super volatile currencies. And so Bitcoin is not that weird. It's not that different to, to other things. And I think that that makes like the perfect recipe for, for Bitcoin adoption. And yeah, so, so a lot of another interesting thing that's happening here is that a lot of uh, on-ramps to Bitcoin are mostly peer-to-peer. Uh, few people use exchanges. Uh, because most of the economy um, outside of the banks uh, is uh, mostly a cash economy. And so when you are buying Bitcoin in a peer-to-peer manner, on the one hand, amounts maybe are not so high. Uh, and on the other hand, it's, it's really important how you handle fees because in other places, maybe that, that, that there's good exchange infrastructure. People are, are leaving the, the money inside the exchanges to not pay the withdrawal fees. Uh, but since uh, here a lot, a lot of it is being done peer to peer, you have to pay the withdrawal fees, um, and so the 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 rise of on chain fees ha- has hit really hard the, the local Bitcoin community, I think. Uh, and so there's a lot of features that are really important uh, for the Argentinian users, such as uh, really good on-chain fee estimation and being able to, to uh, maybe if I trust the other person, I don't need to confirm it right now. And so it's really important to be able to confirm, uh, to, to set the, the fees so that they, they don't need to confirm right now and, and pay cheaper fees. And on the other hand, something really interesting that we've been seeing uh, after the release of Moon 2.0 is that since using Lightning right now is, is so easy and it, it's kind of a no-brainer if I'm going to do like a peer-to-peer transaction to try to use Lightning. And so we are su- suddenly seeing uh, some payments that, that we didn't see before, uh, such as uh, like Lightning payments in the order of $1,000, uh, $2,000, $3,000 which wasn't something that we were counting on, 
So we are rushing right now to, to actually uh, have a good UX and, and uh, support really well high amount lightning payments. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, maybe when you are buying $100 worth of Bitcoin, having to pay maybe $5, $10 of on-chain fees makes it, 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 it... People stop using Bitcoin, right? Yeah. When, when yeah. it's so high. So yeah. Dario, one other point I wanted to touch on there, because I'm just thinking of this in my head as well. When people do peer-to-peer cash trades, often when they are doing it on-chain, someone has to sit there and wait for a confirmation. Uh, but in a high-fee environment, that means you're either, well, it might be a double whammy where you have to pay a high fee and still wait because that confirmation might still take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And yeah. in this time, you're going to have to sit with that person and wait for the confirmation. But now in a lightning world, that's changed, right? Yeah, definitely. It's it's a completely different world. And, and it, it makes a lot of sense to use lightning in that way. Uh, because you get this thing where you just get together, exchange the cash, send the money, and, and you're off. Uh, so UX-wise, um, it's it's completely changed. And so um, I, I think there's a lot of possibilities there. And and, and even with, with the fee exchanges that are starting to, to integrate with Lightning, the experience of uh, selling Bitcoin is completely changed because right now you you don't now you don't have to wait uh, for three confirmations to get your money in and so I, I think that will allow um, for, for the exchanges that go all the way down that that what that uh, path. It's really interesting because they may be able, to, for example, to to give you a quote of, of uh, the rate you are going to use to to sell your bitcoins even before you send them. Uh, which is impossible right now due to the confirmations. And so I think that one of the most interesting things uh, of Lightning right now, when you look at the UX um, and how users are using it, is the fact that the payments are instant. And that changes a lot of things. Small things, uh, but once you you take them to their logical conclusion, I, I think we're going to see... Uh, much nicer uh, non-custodial experiences all over the ecosystem. Fantastic. So let's talk about Moon Wallet then. Can you give us an overview? What is it and what, what's the approach that you have taken with it? Yeah, so um, our objective with Moon is to take make non-custodianship so easy to use that everyone can use it. Um, Bitcoin still has a long way to go there. It's not. We're not expecting to, to, to get to to that point, um, like in a year or so, it's going to take a lot of time. Uh, Bitcoin is, is is a long-term project, right? But uh, there's a lot of things that can be done today uh, to improve the UX, uh, to, to make it really easy to understand what's going on, uh, to send and receive payments without thinking about, about a lot of things, and to not lose your money, uh, which is, I think, recovery is one of the biggest pain points today uh, for mainstream users when using non-custodianship. And for us, it's it's a really important project because um, I think that we are now seeing a lot of mainstream users uh, get into Bitcoin. And if we don't make non-custodianship really, really easy to use, then they will just drop it. And they will use custodial services, and I think it's it's something that we cannot afford to lose. And so we are working on that. Uh, and the idea is, yeah, make make these all these sophisticated technologies that 
had been uh, that the entire ecosystem has been developing developing for several years, like like multi-sig security, uh, Lightning Network, uh, custom fees, uh, and all that stuff uh, work together in an easy to use way. And so for a user that doesn't care much about the details, that's fine. Uh, and they can use it without understanding every single piece of technology. And on the other hand, for, for someone that wants to, to actually understand it and, and play with it, uh, we also give them that possibility. So in a sense, we have like two different audiences, uh, the, the Bitcoin early adopters and the Bitcoin mainstream users that are getting into the, the ecosystem right now. And I think it's really important to to... Uh, pay attention to both audiences, and and I do believe it's possible to be, to build a product for both audiences, especially because mainstream users uh, are really looking for someone to help them get into Bitcoin, and so they go ask uh, the, the person that they know uh, is is a like uh, is the most into Bitcoin, and so we want not only to to help this mainstream user get into Bitcoin, but also the early adopter, make it really easy for them to onboard other, other people, uh, which is something that we see a lot, right? So, so as Bitcoiners really like to, to get other people into Bitcoin, and it's a lot of responsibility. It's uh, super common to be afraid uh, about whether they are going to lose their Bitcoins. We see some people do crazy stuff to avoid, uh, like having, for example, their family lose their Bitcoins. And so I think not only the experience of using Bitcoin, but also the experience of recommending Bitcoin can be improved quite a lot. Yeah, you made a lot of great points there. Um, So I think now would be a good time to talk a little bit about the technological approach taken with Moon. So I was reading your blog post and it seems you've taken a very technology forward approach and some things are slightly different. And so I thought that was why it would make a really great episode for the listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about the Moon approach from a technology point of view? Perhaps perhaps we could start with the uh, fee estimation part. Yeah, sure. So um, we remember from the last couple um, bull markets that uh, when the Bitcoin price goes up, uh, fees go up. And that compounds, right? Because uh, fees are are quoted in Bitcoin. And so it gets super expensive to use Bitcoin and people just stop using it. And so it was really important for us to to tackle that. And and we always felt as users that uh, we could do a better job than than the uh, wallet estimators. And and it was really weird because the the standard answer to that was, well, now you see the the Bitcoin fee market is quite complex and it's real time. So it's really difficult to predict uh, how the fee is going to work. And so... um, for quite a while, we, we just settled with that explanation. And at one point, we decided to actually go there and make some tests and, and figure out if, if that was actually true. Uh, can estimation be better than what every wallet is doing, which is mostly what Bitcoin is doing? And to our surprise, it turned out that uh, you can do much, much better than, than Bitcoin D if you use the mempool data. And so we got down to um, design an, an estimator uh, that we could train with uh, historical uh, mempool data. 
and and it worked really well. Uh, it worked actually much better than, than we expected, which is actually what users were feeling, what we were feeling as users when using Bitcoin, right? We were like, in the middle of a weekend, we knew that uh, Bitcoin fees were really slow, uh, were really low. Um, you go into uh, mempool space and check the fees and, and are, you are doing like manually the work that the, the wallet uh, could be doing. Um, and so there was a big opportunity there. And so we worked for, for the last year uh, on an estimator that that could do like at least a better job that than what users were doing manually, and yeah, so so uh, that's uh, in production right now. It's working really really well. We found a, a couple of ways to optimize it a little bit to guarantee, for example, that that it's always going to be at least as expensive as Bitcoin D or lower. And so we, we get all the non-custodianship guarantees of Bitcoin D's fee estimator. And so th- there, there's a, li- a lot of interesting details that, that you can adjust uh, once you have that. But in retrospect, I, I think right now that we, we could prove that this actually worked. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, to design estimators that are paying attention to what's happening in real time in the mempool, which is super important in high fee markets because they are super volatile. And so you have to adjust rapidly uh, to, to the changes in the mempool. Yeah, really interesting. So if I had to just summarize that for any listeners who are a little bit newer, think of it like when you send your Bitcoin transaction, your wallet has to essentially pick a fee, but it doesn't, we don't know because you, what you what could happen is that it might try to pick a fee that it thinks will get into the next block or maybe into a you know a, one of the later blocks, but then things can change really quickly because a lot of other transactions could all come in and hit inside the mempool waiting to be mined into a transaction. And then you might be you might be left in the lurch or you're kind of now you got pushed back in the queue and that's sort of why uh, the fee conversation um, is a little bit difficult but at the same time that's also why if you're doing small value transactions that's where lightning is a lot more useful um, yeah definitely so uh, Dario I know with moon wallet you're trying to take a different approach around things like you're trying to it seems to me from reading your blog posts and material you're taking a bit of a forward approach you're trying to use output descriptors and mini script and some of these more advanced technical components to that as opposed to doing the typical you know bip 39 12 word seed so can you maybe tell us a little bit about why you're taking this different approach what what's different instead of doing the typical 12 word backup sure so we had this problem really early on because we decided to go with a multi-sig approach to the wallet. We wanted to provide uh, a hot wallet that as better security as possible. And so what we do is uh, Moon is a two of two multi-sig. This means that there, there's one key on the phone and there's another on our servers. And, and so every transaction must be co-signed by, by, by both keys. And so that allows us to, for example, um, make, allow users to maybe uh, tell us that they, they, they lost their phone. And so we stop uh, signing transactions from the old phone uh, until they, they log in into another one. And so a, a lot of cool things uh, can be done one, once you are in the multi-sig world. But then... Uh, like nothing in the ecosystem is prepared to handle that, right? Because the mnemonics, the, the, the 12 words are just a private key. Um, and so if you have more than one private key, then you can't handle mnemonics 
you can have the multi-sig with mnemonics. And then actually, historically, there were a lot of problems with mnemonics uh, because they were missing a lot of metadata. And so uh, it's re- it was really common to, for example, have this uh, backup of mnemonics that I had, I used in a wallet like four years ago, and now I want to, to recover that money. And I input those those words into a new wallet and it can't find any money. So it's a, a really tense moment uh, as a user. And you have to start trying with different wallets, trying to remember what wallet you were using. Um, and so... I believe that the, the mnemonic uh, solution had several problems for a while, but they weren't big enough problems to actually make us as an ecosystem move forward onto other uh, more comprehensive solutions. But uh, then came multisig, which for many years it was there in the protocol, but no one was using it that much. And multisig had, had this problem that you need multiple keys. And so mnemonics don't work anymore. And you need something else. And I, I think that the guys at Blockstream uh, saw this problem a couple of years ago, which prompted them to, to start working on a solution to how can you recover your money uh, from a complex multi-sig setup. And so they ended up creating the output descriptors, uh, which, are, which are this new technology that allows you to express an arbitrary script, an arbitrary set of keys, uh, how they are being used to create outputs, and then you can use that to recover your money. And right now, I think Bitcoin D has almost complete support for output descriptors, so you can import an arbitrary output descriptor and it will find your money, where, whatever it is, uh, and let you move it to wherever you want to, to move it. And so multi-sig was kind of this turning point where if you wanted to do multi-sig, then you had you had to do something different. And that got us thinking about how can we provide a a really easy-to-use recovery system that doesn't depend on Moon. So it it needs to work even if Moon disappears. And now the descriptors were the perfect solution for that. And so, but nobody was using them. Uh, And it wasn't clear from a UX uh, standpoint how exactly they fit it in, in the model in the wild model. And so we had to, to try a lot, iterate a lot, try different solutions. And we got to, to this solution that we call an emergency kit, which is a PDF file uh, that has all the information you need to recover your money whenever you want to. It has the output descriptors. It has uh, both private keys, but all the sensible data. And also it has instructions on how to use it, right? Because mnemonics are, are great, but if you don't know exactly what they are, it's really hard to, to figure it out by yourself. And so I think this is one of the, the points where you have to take care of both your audiences, both uh, the people that are really understand what they are doing and the people that don't have a very good idea of what's happening behind the scenes. But you want to help them anyway. And so, gotcha. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think one point I might just clarify, just because there was a lot there, just for listeners who are not as technical, let me just try to give you a a layman's explanation. So 
Historically, people were using 12-word backup, you know, BIP39 standard or other standards, and because it would rely on using a set, you know, pathway and a set kind of way of doing things. But the reality is that over time, different wallets are using different things. So that introduces this problem of trying to then recover. And how do you then go and like, do you try to recover by trying to brute force all the different wallet parameters? And that's where, you know, uh, sites like walletsrecovery.org will list out the pathways and all the different details. And for example, Luke Childs on an earlier episode, episode 206, we spoke about how he built that kind of feature into Electrum to try to recover and help people deal with that thing. But I think what you're getting at here, Dario, is that we want to try to take a technological approach and try to move into this world where we are using some of the more advanced features, such as output descriptors, which is available and working in the recent versions of Bitcoin Core. And so we can think of it, I guess, maybe let me just put it in a simple terms for people who aren't as technical. You can think of it like you have the private keys but you might not know where to find the money and it's kind of it can like after enough time it might be a little bit like a needle in a haystack problem and so what you're doing is with these new back with this new style of backups is that you're kind of saying here's the private key and here's the map to go and find where that money is so that you haven't lost it correct yeah definitely that's a great explanation uh yeah i i i think that so so i see like we we went like as an ecosystem through three different stages. Uh, when, we, when we were in the single SIG world where uh, a wallet was just a, a, a single private key, then mnemonics were good enough. They had these problems where you had to deal uh, with finding, uh, how do you find the, the, uh, where your money is? But you could kind of brute force it and, and find it. And then we started trying to, we moved to the second phase where we started to get like a little bit uh, more secure setups. And for that, you need multi-sig. And then for multi-sig, then it's much harder and, and mnemonics fall short. And so we need a new solution. And, and now we are moving to a third phase where we have Lightning Network, which is a completely different beast. It's, it's a recovery, it's much harder. If you want to guarantee the non-freezeability aspect of your money, which is how do I move my money without any collaboration from any server? It's a little bit harder, and then you you have to use all this new technology together, right? It's, you need output descriptors, you need Miniscript, PSBTs. And so I think that in the last couple of years, the ecosystem has been creating all these different pieces uh, of technology to solve these new problems, which is it's really great. But we haven't seen... Uh, many wallets up until now try to use them, uh, actually use them to solve problems for the user without the user needing to understand everything that's that's in there. And so that's th- going on in the background, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that's been our main focus. Uh, we want to use all this technology to solve the new problems that we're having that allows us to to use really cool tech. And so we we can have a, a really good security on a mobile phone. We can have a Lightning Network, non-custodial Lightning Network, together with your on-chain wallet. And so it's the the end product that I think it, and the end experience. I, I think it's really cool. But you need to figure out how all these pieces fit together. Right. And I guess let me just underscore one other benefit. So as you're saying, this is a two of two multi-signature. So I think just to underscore that for listeners, that means 
typically, if you're using most phone wallets, the keys are hot on that device. But now, if we're doing two of two multi-sig, now there is a trade-off, right? We're using multi-sig, that costs a little bit more in terms of on-chain fee than, say, single signature, but you are getting a security benefit, and maybe there's a little bit more of a complexity. But now, if somebody hacks your phone, they will not have enough keys to steal your funds, because now it's actually two of two, and Moon's servers have the second key. So can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah, sure. So when you set up your phone, uh, like uh, the, the two keys are created. Uh, one is in the phone and one is created in the server. The second key never goes to the to the phone. So, so you have this guarantee where in order to get your money, an attacker would need to in some way get both keys or get one key and, and fool the server into signing another transaction. So it, it's much more difficult. Our approach here has been how many things have to go wrong in order for an attacker to get your money. And so we have all the, the usual protections and, and we try to be super careful about how we handle the key in the phone. But in the end, even if they get the, the key in the phone, then they just got one of the two keys. And so that gives a, a, an extra layer of security uh, for using a, mobile, a, mo- a, a wallet in a mobile device. And at the same time, your emergency kit, uh, which is uh, this, uh, this PDF where you, ha- you have all your recovery information, has, has both keys. And so you don't, like, if, you, if Moon disappears and the servers are completely destroyed and, and so you can't recover your money via the application, you will always have all the information you need, all the keys you need to move your money independently from Moon. And so you get the best of both worlds where you have this complete autonomy if you wanted to, but that's a little bit uncomfortable to use for day-to-day transactions. And for day-to-day transactions, you have a, a, a really good UX with the best security you can get on a mobile device. Yeah, uh, th- th- that's... Gotcha. Uh, and, yeah. and so the backups part, can you tell us a little bit how that works? Because uh, going through the app, it, says, it seems there's an email and a password part, and then there's also a code. So can you just outline what, are, what is that? Yeah, sure. So, so all those pieces are actually... Sol- we see them as solving two different problems. Uh, one of the problems is how do I get access to my wallet if, for example, I'm changing phones or, or I lost my, my previous phone. And another problem that we're treating kind of separately is how do we get access to the money if Moon disappears, right? We, which gives the non-custodianship guarantee. And so that second part, the non-custodial recovery, is composed of two different pieces of information. You have your recovery code, which is uh, something that you write down on a piece of paper. It's pretty similar to what a mnemonic is. And then you have the emergency kit, which is this PDF file, which has all the information and, the, and it has the private keys, but the private keys are, are encrypted with your recovery code. So you need both pieces of data to be able to move your money. By doing so, by, by separating these two pieces of information I- instead of putting them all together in just a mnemonic, we, we solve a lot of problems because you can have multiple copies of the emergency kit. You can, have it, you can store it in the cloud and that's safe and private. You, you don't have any risk of doing so. So we want to make it so that it's really, really difficult to lose. At the same time, uh, since the recovery code, which is this code written on a, on a piece of paper, is, it's not enough to move your money by itself then you are protected from, exam- 
for example, from someone finding your mnemonics and just like taking your money, uh, which is the regular setup for wallets today. And so uh, we get quite a bit uh, better security against digital attackers and also against physical attackers who just get your get your mnemonic. It's a little bit more complex, but we worked we work really hard to to make it as simple as possible. And so. Uh, once you you set up your wallet, we try to guide you through all these steps so that you when you end, you are completely you're, you are in the best possible state with regards to a non custodianship, how to get your money back, and how to recover your money in case you lose your phone. And then there's this uh, first part where uh, we try to do this, um, maybe this flow to recover your money that may be more familiar for non like maybe beginners where you can either uh, use your recovery code uh, as in every wallet you use the, the piece you, the piece of data you wrote on a paper to get access to your money you can choose to do that or you can choose to do a more traditional approach where you put your email we send you an email uh, to your phone you you click on the email verifying that it's actually you uh, you can use either the code or a password to gain access to your wallet, which we found is easier uh, for new users to grasp and understand what's going on and gives them a couple of, of choices as to how they how to get their money back in case, for example, they forgot their password or, or something like that. Gotcha. So just to clarify there, you have the option there to take, it's kind of like having an encrypted cloud backup and then you're writing down in essence the password to unlock that encrypted cloud backup. And that way there's not a single point of failure. You you need you need both pieces to be able to get the money basically. So then what's could you just outline for me the difference there between the email backup and the password for that versus the kind of overall password in that next step? What, what's the difference there or are they the same? Yeah, sure. So what we're doing in, in the background is uh, we store an, a backup of your private key, uh, the private key that, that lives on, uh, on your phone, encrypted with your password and your recovery code. And so as a user, you can treat it, if you want to, as a regular application where, where you, you, you log in with your email. And once the server uh, verifies that it's really you uh, by, by clicking the email, like a magic link or something like that, then you will be able to, like, if you input your password and the server will, will send a challenge to your phone to verify that you actually uh, know what the password is uh, without revealing it to the server. We have a little bit of crypto there to do that. And once the server verifies that you own the, you know the actual password, then it will send the backup of your private key encrypted with the password. And client side, it will be decrypted and all your wallet state will be restored. And so we started with that setup uh, and we found that uh, it's it's really, really common to forget your password, uh, like everyone forgets their password. And so we started creating extra layers of options there. And so if you forget your password, then you can do the same, but with your recovery code, which is the code you wrote on a paper. And it, it works in, in, in a similar way, uh, where there, there's a backup of your private key encrypted with your recovery code. Once you, you show the server that you actually know what the recovery code is, 
the, the server will send the encrypted backup to the decrypted client side. And yeah, so so that's, I'd say, the, the recovery options that have, you can do them using just the app. They are really easy to use uh, and, and it gives a, a good recovery experience. And then you have this second mechanism, which uh, was the one I, I was telling you about before, which is gotcha. uh, the, the non-custodial mechanism. Back to the show in a moment after a message for the sponsors. CypherSafe.io are producing metal backup seed products. So if you have got a hardware wallet and you've written down those 12 words on that piece of paper, well, now you need to start thinking about making sure it is fireproof and waterproof and rustproof and petproof and tamper evident. So the Cypher wheel is a stainless steel product coming in a wheel shape where you get some tiles and you can slide those tiles in and you do four tiles per word from your seed and it also has a padlock tamper evidence seal so you can know if your seed has been opened. This also helps with recovery so you can make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go and order yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Lend at HODL HODL is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. This is a peer-to-peer lending solution with a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. So you can grow your savings and earn returns on your investment. So if you have stable coins lying around like USDT, you can create an offer and earn interest by lending. On the other hand, if you have Bitcoin and you need some liquidity and you don't want to sell, well, you can borrow stable coins. So with this Lend platform, Platform. You set your own terms, you put up the offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. And finally, coinkite.com. They are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. This is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners and it has a range of features and security aspects to it such as the ability to use it completely air-gapped. You can actually literally never plug it into a computer. You can just plug it to the wall and you can use an SD card or micro SD card rather to shuttle that wallet over and use wallets like Spectre Desktop or Electrum or Blue Wallet. I've long been a fan of this wallet. It allows a lot of security at such a low price point and there's so many awesome features like PSBT. You can use it as part of a multi-sig setup. It has an address explorer. Go and check them out. Go to coinkite.com and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Back to the interview. Yeah. And so that backup then, how do we deal then, and I guess we'll get into the lightning stuff as well, but that backup, does that also recover whatever was in the lightning channels as well? Yeah. So so all, all your wallet state is backed up in the server, encrypted with your key. So once you, you recover your key, uh, you can download all your encrypted backup, decrypted locally and in some way, recreate uh, your wallet state as if you you had always been using it in that same phone. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, cool. And that can be quite handy, I guess, because there are people all around the world, and I, I presume then this kind of wallet might make a lot of sense for people who are more in the developing world and they're not using the typical sort of hardware wallets and everything else. They might just have a phone wallet, and this could be the kind of one easy wallet that they use. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it doesn't replace the need for hardware wallets. Uh, if you want to hold course, yeah. a lot of money, uh, you will like. We we still, uh, of course, recommend to use hardware wallets. Um, and eventually, it'd be nice to 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 have a, a a nice integration with hardware wallets. I think the guys at Casa, for example, are doing a great job there. 
making it accessible to to use like really cool secure setups with hardware wallets in an accessible manner. But you will, like most people uh, that we talk with uh, have a, at least a little bit of money at hand, uh, a little bit of bitcoins. Uh, if they if they want to use it somewhere and then for the people that are just getting into bitcoin that maybe don't have yet enough knowledge to use a hero wallet successfully i think it's a, it's a, like having a mobile wallet is a really good way to to onboard these people ha- let them have their first bitcoin experience later on moving to a hero wallet and so uh, right now we we are working on like Figuring out like, the thing is this is hard, but figuring out uh, at what point we want to uh, start suggesting users to maybe move some of the money to a hardware wallet or a more secure setup. So I think it's uh, we want to help users all the way, even if uh, this the best solution isn't is, isn't to store their money in Moon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. And I think um, it, it makes a lot of sense for people to try this one as a first wallet, even um, just for a total newbie starting to learn. And then because it's already got Bitcoin and Lightning, you can alleviate some of that fee concern as well. So let's get into the Lightning stuff. So it's interesting. You've got one unified balance. There's no sort of separate Bitcoin and Lightning. Can you tell us a little bit for the listeners who want to understand what's going on under the hood? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So, so we we started with that vision uh, for us. And, uh, we thought a lot about how we're going, the Lightning Network. How, how is it going to interact uh, with on-chain payments? And so we figured early on that on-chain payments aren't going away anytime soon, because actually in, in Lightning, when you do the math. Uh, you end up uh, seeing that as time goes on, the fees tend to be proportional to the amount. And so if you, let's say, I don't know, 0.5, we may see once everything settles down and it gets a little bit more stable, we may see uh, proportional fees in the Lightning Network. And so that's like, I don't know, uh, maybe 0.5% fees to say something. Uh, And so... That's that makes it makes it so that Lightning is uh, really good uh, for small amount payments, but once you get to to really big amounts, then on chain is much better because fees are much smaller and they they don't scale with the amount you're sending. And and maybe if you're sending one million dollars, then Lightning will probably never work for that or will be super expensive. And so we wanted to to provide a really unified experience and as time goes on and, and, and the ecosystem st- starts adopting Lightning more and more, users will be able to, to, do, to perform Lightning payments without having to take a decision previously about how, what amount of money they want to use for Lightning and what amount of money they want to use for on-chain. And, and so we set to do that and we started uh, experimenting early on with submarine swaps based on the on the work that Alex Bosworth had been doing uh, it was it, it was really inspiring for us uh, to, to to see that summer swaps worked really well they had some problems but overall they were a, a great solution if you wanted to provide a unified balance for on-chain and off-chain and at the same time don't break the non-custodianship guarantees it was like a and it provided us a, a path to, to doing full lightning while maintaining the non-custodianship guarantees in an incremental way, right? 
So we started with summer in swaps and we started uh, making them better and better and better. And, and now we are moving towards that. So we started with a default on-chain mechanism and now we're moving towards a default off-chain mechanism. And so this is, I think there are three interesting ideas that we're using in order to, to manage that level of UX. On the one hand, we are using, we are starting to use something that we call non-interactive channels, which is the idea that you can't, you can receive an on-chain payment and that same payment will open a channel between you and Moon. And so you don't have to pay any, any fees in order to, to have, to get your money on-chain once you receive on-chain. Uh, and, and that allows us to, to mix that part of the on-chain world with, with the off-chain setup. And then on the other hand, you need to be able, like if you have your money on channels, you need to be able to, to make on-chain payments. There's an old idea to do that that's called splice outs. And splice outs are this idea where if you have all, all your money in payment channels, then you can close your channels, make an on-chain transaction, and reopen channels with, with your change, you can do all those uh, operations in the same transaction. And so it's, it's kind of an atomic operation. You can get to a really, really good UX because now between non-interactive channels and splice outs, you can receive and send on-chain payments while having all your money in channels all the time. And I think that's a really, that provides a way to, to have a really good UX. Uh, it's super hard to do, right? So, so we've been building this uh, for a couple of years now, and we still have at least a year ahead of us uh, to make everything work. Uh, right now, our channels are really basic because we wanted to nail all these points before getting to the full payment channels. And so right now, the payment channels are single use. They don't have revocations, so they aren't super efficient. The next step will be to, to add full revocation to the channels and have like full off-chain payments and, and have all these uh, really cool things of super low fees of using Lightning. And yeah, so, so that, that's our basic architecture. It's, it's quite complex, <laughs> as you can see. But I think after working on it for, for, for a bit, I think um, it's, we got it to a point uh, where now we feel it's, it's been actually worth it to go that way. And we can do that. It was really important for us to not compromise either on the UX or the non-custodianship of on-chain payments while doing so. So we maybe, maybe we took a, the long road to getting here compared to other wallets. And so for a while, uh, we didn't have a really good lightning UX. But I think now we got to the point where it's, it's good enough and, and you can have this really nice onboarding experience and you can have this uh, really integrating Lightning and on-chain experience. Uh, so so I, I think it was worth, worth it. Right, I see. And so basically the wallet does everything in Lightning and then the idea is when it needs to make an on-chain payment, it will do a swap out using like a submarine swap style. Is that Have I understood you correctly there? Uh, we are actually right now uh, about to, to, to release uh, a version where we don't use uh, swaps anymore. We actually do these splice outs, which are these like channel break uh, and reopen operations, yeah. which are much more efficient. But yeah, they, they are way harder to, to, to code. So it took us a while. 
But yeah, so so you could receive directly on a channel and send money on chain by breaking a channel, closing a channel, sending the payment, and reopening a channel with a change output. So it's it actually on chain when you see it, it looks just like a regular on chain transaction. And now that we, uh, it appears that we'll have Taproot in a few months, it will look like a, a regular on-chain transaction. There, there will be uh, no difference from doing like regular payments. I, I think one of the cool things that I really like about this approach is that since each time you receive an on-chain payment that UTXO opens a payment channel, then you you kind of like the the old problem uh, of on-chain wallets of UTXO selection and, and dealing with UTXOs uh, now becomes the channel selection problem and you have to deal with channels, uh, which is a, a little bit of a different problem that has different trade-offs. Actually, you need to kind of rethink what a wallet is from the ground up once you want to support lining like a, a unified lining experience. Yeah, certainly a very interesting experience, a very interesting um, technological approach and a little different from the other wallets that I've seen to date. Um, so is it using LND in the background or what's going on there? So uh, we use uh, LNDs for our node in, in the server, but for the channels between the server and the user's phones, a completely different uh, stack uh, where we had it, it was so custom that we had to to build it ourselves. And gotcha. actually, the, the, there's a lot of parts that you don't need if you uh, want to solve that problem specifically. Uh, we are using, for example, you don't need all the routing stuff uh, because we're doing something similar to to trampling payments, and and, and so uh, the routing is right now outsources to outsource it to the server. LNDs solve that problem for us. Gotcha. Um, so uh, I guess, yeah, so there'll be a few, I guess it's like the privacy question around that. Um, but uh, also, I guess before we get there, I also wanted to talk a little bit about how you're doing um, with the channels. Like, is the wallet already using things like MPP or things like that in the background? Uh, not or right now. Multi-part payments uh, for anyone. Yeah. yeah. So we don't support MPP right now. We are working on it. We do support it for sending, but, but not for receiving. It, it wasn't... Uh, super easy to implement with our current infrastructure, but we're building all the parts to make it possible. And so I guess we'll soon uh, have MPP, uh, but not sure exactly when right now. Gotcha. Yeah. And also just, uh, I guess, the trade-offs around the uh, turbo channels components. I saw there was a blog post about that. Has that changed since then or is that still the case? Can you outline a little bit about what that is and how you're using that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so there's this uh, really hard problem in the Lightning Network, which is the, the inbound capacity problem. And for end users, this means that how do I receive Lightning payments if I don't have enough inbound capacity? If no one is has opened a channel previously with me and has logged their money in order to make it possible that I can receive enough funds via Lightning. And so what we saw in, in, in the last couple of years from different wallets and different experiments is that uh, a lot of people are tending towards using turbo channels, which are a cool way of saying like zero confirmation channels. So, so someone opens a channel uh, towards you 
in on the spot like once you want to receive some money if you don't have enough inbound capacity uh, someone can open a channel on the spot uh, with you and route the payment that you are receiving through that channel and then you have like a, as a as a user you have the possibility of choosing to either trust your counterparty to not make a double spend of the channel or you can just wait until you are super sure that the channel is fully open and then accept the payment. And so we wanted to give users the possibility of choosing whether they, they prefer the, the full security or the full uh, like UX, uh, nice UX of having instant payments. And so uh, we took the maybe not so common approach of, of uh, leaving this this decision to the user. And so in, in, in Moon's settings, you can choose whether you're okay trusting turbo channels or if you want to turn them off and just each time you receive a payment, when you don't have enough inbound capacity, then you will just wait uh, for a full confirmation and then accept the payment. Yeah. So I guess just for clarity then, that means if a new user sets up Moon Wallet and they want to fund it, can they fund that either with an on-chain transaction or with a Lightning or do they have to fund it with an on-chain transaction first? They can do. They, they can receive uh, from any network. Uh, so, so the idea is that uh, we wanted to make it so that um, users uh, stopped uh, thinking about whether they have on-chain or off-chain balance. They just have one balance and they can, at any time, they can either receive a Lightning payment or, a, or an on-chain payment and they can make a Lightning payment or an on-chain payment. And that works like uh, it, all the combinations work. You can install Moon and receive via Lightning or receive via on-chain and then immediately after make either a Lightning payment or an on-chain payment and that will work. Yeah, that's very clever. I like that. And um, I think that might make a lot of sense for um, people in the developing world who really, they can appreciate having super low fees for small value transactions because otherwise, I mean, I've seen cases where people in the developing world will try to withdraw from an exchange and then see that all their, all like, you know, some huge percentage of the amount they're withdrawing gets basically eaten up in Bitcoin fee, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's really hard and and um also like e- even if if you are okay with that fee then it, they 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 now want to use the lightning network and if they find that they have to pay like a huge fee to open a channel and they have to wait for some confirmation it's it's really hard to grasp uh for for maybe for someone that's not so technical and and even if if you understand everything that's going on um the ux is, is kind of hard uh, so it's it's um, really useful to have all that abstracted away and not have to think about it, and it just works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really a fascinating approach. So I guess the other part is around the privacy angle. So I guess this is probably one area where we're having to make a trade-off here that, you know, the user is making off a trade-off there for for use, um, for, for having non-custodial, having easy UX. Maybe it's some bit of a, some amount of a privacy trade-off, but probably worth it for a new user just to have an easy on-road into Bitcoin and Lightning, right? Yeah, so um, we started with a very, like Moon 1.0 was a very non-private wallet. And since then we learned, like like we learned a lot uh, about why it was important and, and how to achieve 
the UX we were trying to do without uh, compromising privacy. And so we've been moving uh, towards being more and more private uh, as we as we've iterated. And I think we still have a lot of, a lot of way to go, but we are finding that uh, little by little we can uh, provide this level of UX um, with uh, with better and better uh, privacy guarantees. And for example, uh, the guys at, uh, at Phoenix are doing uh, a really good work uh, with uh, trample and payments, which are uh, like, they allow you to make lightning payments uh, without having to, to, um, to make all the routing decisions on your phone while preserving a lot of uh, the privacy guarantees. Uh, and so we're we're implementing that right now, um, and and I think it's really cool. It, it, for, in order to be really private, uh, you need a, a lot of adoption of trampoline payments uh, throughout the entire Lightning ecosystem, which I, I guess it will take some time. Uh, but I think they they are a great trade-off, right? Because um, yeah. running running a node on your phone uh, is hard. So so if we can find a way to do it. Uh, in a way that actually works, uh, it's it's efficient enough to to run on a phone. That's maybe most of them. It's not connected to the internet, um, and at the same time provide really good fees and really good privacy. I, I think that's uh, where um, not not only us but but the entire uh, non custodial wallet ecosystem uh, in Lightning wants to go towards. And 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 I think it's. It's going to be possible. We are all working towards that direction. There's still a lot of um, improvements to do and, uh, and things to do to, to actually get there, uh, but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think this makes a lot of sense for those kinds of users who are totally new and just need an easy way to get started and they don't want to have to think about lightning and channels and blah, blah, blah. They just want to you know, pay Bitcoin and receive Bitcoin. Um, so in terms of uh, receiving Bitcoin, so let's say they want to do a lightning uh, receive. They would have to go into the receive and then type in an invoice amount, basically, and then they can receive on that. Or how how how's that part of it work? Um, so right now you, we are using uh, amountless invoices. Uh, this means that uh, you you just use a QR in the same way that you would do uh, with on-chain payments, um, but uh, we're right now we are adding the possibility to to add an amount to your invoice because many services uh, that already support Lightning, they only support invoices with amounts. And so we are adding the possibility uh, in the same way uh, as as with uh, on-chain payments. You can use a regular QR code that doesn't have any amount, but optionally you can add an amount and, and be explicit about that. Gotcha. And as I understand, there were some people who raised a security concern around that. I know the Zap team, and I think they didn't like the idea of amountless invoices because one of the intermediary hops can steal some of the funds. But then I also understand that there's a, um, I think with if you do it with Keysend, you can do it in a more safe way. So what's your thought there? Yeah, so it, it used to be unsafe. Uh, but uh, since then, like from... Maybe uh, half a year ago, it's already like a solution has already been been devised to to solve this security problem. Um, 
which actually uh, it, it involves uh, adding a, a, an extra secret to the invoice, uh, which was uh, necessary in order to provide, uh, in order to, to perform MPP payments. Um, they had the same problem, like how do you know that you already receive uh, all the parts that composed uh, a payment? Um, and so uh, right now it, it's not unsafe anymore. Um, the, the problem has been completely solved. Uh, but I, I guess uh, not everyone either knows about this or, or has implemented um, the support for, for payment secrets. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll see the, the, the ecosystem uh, transition to, to, to using more payment secrets because uh, everyone wants MPP. And so... Um, I, I, I think uh, this is just a transitionary period where some people don't support them. But yeah, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, so it's probably just a factor of sometimes some, it depends what wallet you're sending from, because if that wallet doesn't support sending into that kind, then then you get this kind of, it's and really it's just an initial teething problem because we anticipate, you know, in a few months, uh, whatever, like basically all the wallets will have it and then it won't be an issue. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, and I think it's it's really important. We we put a lot of thought about how to make the Lightning experience as similar as possible to the on-chain experience, and users are really used to to uh, using QRs without an amount. So it was important for us to figure out how to provide that same experience and maybe make the amounts optional in the same way as for on-chain payments. Yeah, um, and one other thing I'm thinking of is. People maybe from the older days are more used to this idea and maybe this is more in an asynchronous way. So as an example, people can just put up a Bitcoin address and or they maybe they're operating, they're doing some kind of online trade or you know, peer-to-peer, but online, not in person. And they might say, I'll pay me into this address. And then I guess now with Lightning, it's the online requirement. So how do you have any ideas or what's what's the approach with Moon Wallet on on that like for example let's say you have sent somebody a lightning invoice and you've closed or you've you know switched to another app on your phone will moon still be able to take the payment or do you have to keep moon open while you are expecting a payment so we'll try as hard as possible to wake up your device uh, and sign accept the payment in the background most of the time it works and when it doesn't uh, you will receive a, a, a like a push notification, a, a, a UI notification uh, asking you to open the app. Hopefully, it, it isn't happening. It, it isn't that common. Uh, most of the time, the the operate the, the mobile operating system is okay with waking the application and having them uh, accept the payment in the background. But you can always be offline, right? So. Uh, uh, some lightning payments might might take a while if the receiving phone is turned off or is offline uh, you might need to to wait until it, it it's turned on but in practice uh, it isn't we aren't seeing uh, that situation that often we'll see how how it progresses as as people start using lightning more and more um, so it, it'll be interesting to see um, but yeah, so, so one of the, for example, one of the requests uh, we recently had uh, from several people is to, to uh, we were using a one hour expiration uh, for our invoices, um, our, our lining invoices. And 
that was okay if you wanted to to pay uh, be aligning to receive a aligning payment face to face. Uh, but if you wanted to do maybe a more asynchronous flow where you maybe I, I send you uh, an invoice via some chat application and you're in a different time zone and maybe you'll see it eight hours later, um, then you might want to, to set the expiration of your invoices uh, longer in the future. And so we are working on allowing that. Um, and, and in those asynchronous flows, it's much more uh Probable that that you may, maybe uh, your phone is off, you are sleeping, your phone is offline, or something like that. Um, and so um, we really had to handle um, the fact that even though most of the time lightning payments are instant, they might not be so if if the other phone um, isn't isn't connected to the internet. Uh, so in in that way. Um, we handle them uh, in a similar manner to on-chain payments, where you you just have your 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 payment is pending until uh, the other phone wakes up. Uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting stuff, and I think um, it's a very uh, interesting, I guess, technological approach here. So, with um, I guess the other question is just around sustainability of the wallet. Like, what's kind of the model going forward, and like whether the model, like the wallet. I guess, how is it being funded such that it is sustainable into the future? Sure. Um, so, so our idea is to, to start at some point in the future, uh, allowing users to, to both uh, buy and sell Bitcoins in-app. Uh, not by ourselves, because we want to, 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 we want to keep being non-custodial and we want to not know anything about our users. So we wouldn't be okay with doing some KYC stuff uh, with our servers. Uh, but I think we can we can maybe provide uh, a, a nice um, uh, on ramp and off ramp experience inside the app by working with other exchanges, and so um, our monetization strategy goes um, towards that way, uh, where we want to to be part of of uh, the flow of buying and selling Bitcoin, especially for newcomers, uh, and and the idea would be to to make Moon a, a single-stop solution for onboarding people to Bitcoin, where you just have to download Moon, and then you can uh, buy your bit, your first Bitcoins. You can store them there in a secure manner, um, non-custodially. You can send them, receive them, and eventually sell them if you want to. Um, so yeah, we're building, we're building up uh, until we get to the point where we can provide a, a, an even better experience of buying bitcoins and holding them in a non-custodial matter, in a non-custodial manner uh, in a better way than than custodially fantastic and uh, daria also just wanted to get a sense from you what's the argentina bitcoin scene looking like is are you seeing a lot of people getting into bitcoin are they you know getting into lightning what's the um what's the what's the feel from the ground um, so it's 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 really crazy right now. Uh, there's a lot of people getting into Bitcoin. Everyone is talking about Bitcoin. Um, like uh, uh, every friend from school, every person I know has pinged me in the last um, in the last months or so, um, asking about Bitcoin. And it's really common to to just uh, hearing people. Uh, in the street, talking about Bitcoin and crypto in general. Uh, so I, I think um, 
it's really interesting what's happening for, for the general population, for the mainstream uh, users. Uh, everyone is is interested uh, about it and talking about it. Um, there's a huge uh, community uh, that that that's been um, in here from from really early on. Uh, in Argentina, it's, it, it, there's a lot of uh, people working in order to receive new people and, and explain to them uh, what Bitcoin is and, and, and the right ways to use Bitcoin. So, so it's really welcoming for newcomers. Um, there's a huge um, Facebook group uh, that, I don't know, it, there's like uh, five, 10,000 people uh, getting into the group every week. Uh, right now, um, and yeah, so I, I think it's it's really interesting what's happening here. Um, I think Bitcoin has the has the potential to solve uh, problems like real problems right now for people that don't even care about Bitcoin. Um, it's, uh, for example, it's really hard in Argentina to move money in or out of the country. It's really hard to to buy U.S. dollars. Uh, and so people are left with the fact that um, they have to either uh, save, uh, have their savings in, in Argentinian pesos or, 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 or look for other solutions. And so I think Bitcoin um, is um, a really interesting way out. The, the usability is getting better and better. There's a lot of exchanges uh, here in Argentina. Uh, it's growing like crazy. Uh, I don't know, there's 15 exchanges right now or something like that. Um, and it, it's growing quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm really excited about what I'm seeing. Like, I didn't expect to see this level of of um, adoption for quite a while. Uh, so it's happening really fast. Um, and we'll see where it goes, but uh, there's there's a tremendous opportunity for Bitcoin to to be more than a, a, an investment or, or um, like uh, I, I think like I, I always think that uh, Bitcoin will have succeeded once um, users are using it without even knowing that Bitcoin is in the background. And I think we're getting faster and faster to that point. Uh, so uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool to see. So I guess when I'm thinking about moon wallet i'm just i'm sort of thinking how slick it is in terms of having a unified balance do you see moon as like a wallet that kind of works like really especially well for people in uh more like a developing world or do you see it kind of just like it's it's operating like really like even people in the western world would really uh get a lot of benefit from using this wouldn't you think uh yeah definitely so so we're building uh we are trying to build globally from the get-go um and and uh it's uh, really interesting because uh, you have like a, a, a huge set of challenges uh, once you, you want to give a really good experience um, for for everyone, uh, at least in the Western world. Um, but uh, so a while ago, we uh, did an experiment uh, in a slam here in Argentina to to actually understand how how well suited is Bitcoin today. Uh, to solve, uh, may maybe to, to, to follow this uh, narrative of uh, banking the unbanked and, and actually helping uh, people that are, aren't that integrated into, into 
the the regular system banking system and uh, and the rest of the institutions and so what we found at that point was that uh, Bitcoin still has a really long way to go to get there um, th these people maybe didn't have a phone or, or didn't have internet or had uh, internet but with really really bad connectivity and and maybe they weren't that educated or, 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 or in in the how the digital world uh, works uh, and we were using a lot of um, analogies uh, like digital analogies UX analogies that they didn't understand um, and so I think uh, bo both uh, Bitcoin and the bigger uh, tech industry has a lot to learn in order to to solve the the solve problems for the people that maybe are most in need of it uh, and we're working towards that way I, I think the entire ecosystem is working towards towards that uh, but we still have a long way to go uh, it's um, th there, there are some basic requirements today uh, for using Bitcoin, like having uh, a good internet connection, having a smartphone, uh, being like somewhat used to, to uh, what a, 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 a mobile application is. Uh, and so there's a lot of education work to be done there. Um, but I, I, I think Bitcoin will get there. Uh, it's a... I think it can solve real problem uh, for for people that are most in need of them, um, which is half, half of the world's population, right? So, so it's a huge opportunity uh, for for everyone, and we'll eventually get there. Cool. Um, look, Dario, I think it's probably a good point to finish up here. So, uh, where can listeners find you online? Yeah. Uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, at e s in n e D-E-R. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, you can uh, look me up there or, or via email, uh, via Signal. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I, I'm super happy always to, to talk with uh, people that may have uh, ideas or questions about uh, where the Bitcoin ecosystem is going and, and what's actually uh, possible to be done in, in the next couple of years. So feel free to reach me and I'd be happy to talk. Excellent. Well, yeah, thanks very much for the work you're doing, uh, making uh, Bitcoin and Lightning very accessible. I think listeners should uh, go and check out the Moon Wallet. And uh, thank you, Dario, for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was, it was really nice. So I hope you found that an interesting discussion around wallet backups and wallet architecture what do you think in terms of using output descriptors and do you think it makes sense for a newcomer to be using moon wallet given that it has bitcoin and lightning all in one with no real distinction between the two give them a try and let me know what you think you can find the show notes for this episode at stefanlevera.com slash 254 and make sure you're telling your friends and family about my show this is obviously a time where there's a lot of new people coming into the space. So make sure you're giving them the guidance to go and learn from the show also. Thanks. And I'll see you guys in the Citadels.